1976. The Last Words, written by Howard Hughes. It was early evening at the Acapulco Prince's Hotel, a time when the sun had lost its heat and pushed shadows of palm trees and hibiscus across the manicured lawns of the most expensive resort in Mexico. At the El Grado Pool Bar, a trio of tanned women in brightly colored bikinis ordered margaritas, acutely aware that they were being ogled by a nearby group of fat, aging businessmen who were in the coastal city to attend a convention of sporting goods manufacturers. They were the kind of women that would have appealed to Howard Robard Hughes on another day in another time. Not now, however. At age 70, weak and tired, he did not want to be bothered. Hughes tore the yellow page from the legal-sized pad, folded in thirds with thin, feeble fingers, creased it with inch-long nails, and handed the note to his aide, George Frankham, who was standing by his bedside. Frankham, in turn, read the note, folded it once again, and left the room without speaking. It was the fourth memo he had received that day from his employer, instructing him to leave him alone, and the aide gave it little thought. He had no way of knowing that his billionaire employer lay dying in the next room. Inside the master bedroom of the penthouse suite, Hughes lay naked on a hospital bed, his frail body covered by a single cotton sheet and propped up in an inclining position. The large windows of the room on the twentieth floor were sealed from within, using sheets of plywood and heavy black cloth, their edges taped flat, preventing even a whisper of light from entering the space. There was a fetid smell of decay about the place, as much from the lack of fresh air as from the aging billionaire. Silence. Hughes appreciated the silence that had become his most valued friend as he weakly attempted to shift his position off the untreated sores that covered his back. Unable to get comfortable, he reached over to the nightstand next to his bed and moved his hand across its surface until he felt the metal top of the box that contained what Hughes liked to call his medication. He pushed past empty syringes, past pill bottles containing codeine, Emperor number four with codeine, and capsules of Librium and Secanol, until he found a jar filled with ten milligram Valium, nicknamed Blue Bombers by his aides. He removed six of the tiny pills, placed them in his mouth one at a time, and swallowed. The single reading lamp attached to his bed cast sharp shadows about the room. A long dresser and two chairs were barely distinguishable amid the black womb of solitary confinement that was Hughes' home. He stared into the void as he took a mental inventory of his holdings. His Las Vegas casinos, hotels and television station, his helicopter plant, his airline, his medical institute, and thousands of acres of undeveloped land in four states, most of which he had never seen. The one-time record-breaking aviator even thought of flying again, piloting the Sikorsky S-43 amphibian, the single-engine Northrop Gamma, the wooden Hercules with its massive 320-foot wings, the XF-2 with its blue and white Air Force insignia. And with that, he fell into a restless sleep. In the outer room, Frankham made note of the memo in a log kept methodically by Hughes' six aides, one of whom was never far from his bedside. These six men, plus two assistants and a doctor on duty, were the billionaire's only human contact. This eclectic mix of employees who dubbed their boss the old man, held what outsiders would later call the keys to the kingdom.
for they were the only individuals allowed access to the elusive billionaire. Access was not control, however. There was no controlling the old man. In the past, Hughes had gone through periods of severe illness and had proven to be a stubborn, ornery, and self-destructive patient. And that did not seem about to change. He refused to see his doctors or be given a thorough physical exam, self-medicated himself with amply available narcotics, and told all who questioned his methods to mind their own business. For the past week, the reclusive eccentric had stopped eating, refusing even his favorite ice cream and strawberry tarts. He repeatedly demanded and received glasses of refrigerated Poland water, and then left them untouched to warm by his bedside, only to call for more. Increasingly listless, Hughes had spent the majority of his time sleeping, particularly odd for a man who was known to work days at a stretch without stopping to rest. When he wasn't sleeping, Hughes was hallucinating, launching into rambling monologues about needing to buy life insurance, and his plan to build a multimillion dollar mansion in the city of Houston, the place of his birth, in a state he had not visited in nearly forty years. By Saturday, April 3rd, Hughes slipped into a trance-like state, according to the AIDS logs, again on Trancom's watch. When the man waved his right hand in front of Hughes' staring eyes and found no reaction, Francom rushed to call Dr. Lawrence Chafin, an 83-year-old Los Angeles surgeon, who was one of three physicians on Hughes' medical team. Concerned that Hughes was plunging into an exorable coma, Chafin called the hotel doctor, 45-year-old Victor Manuel Montemayor, to arrange for Acapulco's Laboratorio Central de Analasis to run blood tests on his failing patient. The lab technician who came to the hotel brought a malfunctioning vacuum tube, forcing Chafin to withdraw Hughes' blood using an empty syringe. Complicating matters further, the technician spoke no English. Since none of the Hughes staff in Acapulco spoke Spanish, it was impossible for Chafin to communicate the blood tests he needed to be run immediately. Rather than involve hotel staff in the now critical situation, a three-way call was placed between the nurse, the doctor, and aide Chuck Waldron's brother-in-law, a Hughes employee in Las Vegas. He spoke Spanish, and carefully translated instructions and questions between the two. By the time the test results were finally returned to the Acapulco Princess, it was after midnight on Sunday, April 4th. When Chafin saw the results, one set of numbers alerted him to a serious problem. While Hughes' glucose result was reported at a nearly normal level of 122, average glucose readings range from 80 to 120, and an average level of uric acid and cretinine, his urea level was extraordinary, 104.5 milligrams. A normal level was in the 20 to 38 milligram range. Compounding Chafin's confusion was his lack of knowledge of the amount of medication that Hughes had consumed during his stay in Acapulco. Eager to get an additional opinion, Chafin placed a call to Hughes' lead physician, 50-year-old Dr. Wilbur Thane, only to discover that Thane was in the Bahamas attending a charity ball, benefiting a center for retarded children, and was unreachable. At nearly the same moment, however, Hughes began to show signs of alertness, stunning some of Chafin's fears. Late in the afternoon on April 4th, aides George Frankham and Gordon Margulis entered Hughes' room and discovered the old man attempting to give himself an injection of liquid codeine in his left arm. Already drugged and weakened to the point of exhaustion, 
Hughes dropped the syringe on the floor, begging Frankham to retrieve it. Although Frankham recovered the syringe, he was too frightened to help the exhausted Hughes inject himself with a potent prescription. Margulis also rejected Hughes' plea. Alarmed at what he saw and uncertain of the outcome, Frankham frantically summoned yet another doctor, Norman Crane, a 71-year-old Los Angeles internist and Hughes' other physician-in-residence. Seemingly unfazed by the unfolding drama, Crane injected Hughes with the drug and returned to his own room without comment. He was calm, though not unconcerned. After conferring with Dr. Chafin, Crane agreed the situation warranted Dr. Thane's immediate notification. With the help of Thane's secretary, the doctor was eventually tracked down in Miami. I changed my plans and booked the first flight the next morning from Acapulco, Thane later stated in an interview in the American Medical News. Sometime after midnight, Thane reported that he was told that Hughes had suddenly become very critical and it looked as if he was going to die. It was a shock and a surprise. I've been called to see Hughes in mid-March because he was not eating and drinking, but he put me off and put me off and finally fell to sleep without seeing me. But he ate and drank more the day I was there than he had in the previous two days, and I looked in on him as he slept, and although he had lost a little weight, he didn't look a lot worse than before. This time, Hughes was not as fortunate. When eight Chuck Waldron came on duty just before midnight, April 4th, Hughes was passive, immobile, and staring blankly toward the ceiling. He had fallen into a deep coma and needed immediate emergency care. Both doctors Crane and Chafin would later testify that they were aware their patient was dying. In an effort to counteract Hughes' severe dehydration, Chafin began an intravenous glucose drip and instructed Waldron to charter a plane to fly Dr. Thane to Mexico immediately. Graf Jet, an air ambulance service in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, was hired to transport Thane and some extra intravenous glucose to Acapulco. The flight left Florida at 3.30 a.m. Pilot Roger Sutton and co-pilot Jeff Abrams were not informed of the name of the patient they would be flying from Mexico, nor were they told where the patient was going. There was far more to the mystery than mere secrecy. In reality, the decision of the destination had yet to be made. If there was ever any doubt that Howard Hughes was in control of his own destiny, all such skepticism disappeared during the early morning hours of April 5th. Amid the plush surroundings of the penthouse suite, Bedlam reigned. Waldron and Margulis were continuously on the telephone attempting to get direction from Hughes executives in Los Angeles. They contacted their immediate superior, Kay Glenn, a longtime Hughes employee, who in turn reached Executive Vice President Bill Gay. Their boss needed immediate hospitalization if there were to be any hope of saving his life. Yet no one could agree on an appropriate strategy. No contingency plan was in place for such a situation. Hughes had never considered the prospect of his own death, and his employees were ill-prepared for its eventuality. As it became more apparent that Hughes would have to be moved, Waldron and Margulis were told by Glenn to make the old man look presentable. It was a harder assignment than the simplicity of the statement would suggest. The last time Hughes had a haircut was in March 1973. Shoulder-length, thinning, and gray, Hughes' hair was also matted and dirty. He wore a Van Dyke beard, gray and unkempt. 
While Waldron trimmed five inches of hair from Hugh's head and trimmed his beard, Margulis tackled a far worse assignment, trimming the old man's fingernails and toenails. While not seven inches in length, as some rumors had sized them, his nails were well over an inch long, thick, curling, and yellowed from onchiomycosis, a fungal condition from which Hughes had suffered for fifty-five years. Margulis softened the nails in warm water and cut them to a normal length, placing the nail ends with the shorn hair in a plastic bag for shipment back to Hughes' offices in California. Just before 5.30 a.m., Hughes began to experience convulsions, first on his left side and then on his right. Concerned that the intravenous needle would infiltrate Hughes' tissue, Dr. Chafin stopped the life-saving drip. With no options, even less time, and Dr. Thane still in flight, Chafin placed another emergency call to Dr. Montemayor, requesting that he immediately come to the penthouse suite. Montemayor arrived within 15 minutes and was met in the empty hotel lobby by Eric Bundy, the Hughes aide in charge of telephone communications. He was nervous and obviously upset, Montemayor later remembered, and kept saying we needed to hurry. I thought that since I had been told this was an emergency, the need for speed would have been obvious. Apparently not. Using a private key to open the elevator doors on the hotel's 20th floor, Bundy escorted the doctor past the security guard on duty, Rudolfo Castro Maganda, and introduced him to Drs. Chafin and Crane. I saw two very tired men, said Montemayor, and Dr. Crane's eyes were swollen as if he'd been crying. Although no one had yet to mention the name Howard Hughes, I knew from the importance of the situation that he had to be the patient. Given his preconceived impression of Hughes' wealth and reputation, Montemayor was stunned by what he witnessed when he entered Hughes' room. I saw a naked man covered by a sheet who looked extremely emaciated. He was approximately 70 years of age, 75 centimeters in height, white, very long, grayish hair, baldish, with a rather long beard, and pale. His right eye was opened and his left eye was only partly opened. His breathing was short and slow, and the man was unconscious, Montemayor testified to Mexican federal judge Antonio Uribe Garcia. I told the doctors that their patient should be in a hospital. They explained to me that the man was very stubborn and refused medical treatment. So I said, the man is unconscious. Unconscious men do not put up a fight. For the next two hours, Montemayor examined Hughes and found him to be extremely dehydrated. His back was covered with numerous untreated bed sores, needle marks pocket.